So if you've been on the podcast site, you know we have stereo now. Um, new speaker, stereo. I thank my IT man for his guidance in this project. Um, you know, you told me to get one with two. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. okay. All right. So last couple of weeks, we've been talking about how not to wander off. Um, I trust you understand. Um, if you didn't, let me know. We can talk further about it. Um, you know how not to wander off, right? I won't put anybody on the spot, but you know how not to wander off from Jesus. We talked about it from three sermons in Colossians, one in uh, uh, Philippians, how not to wander off. We, uh, we look at God and we love God and we incarnate the Word of God. We talked about the fact that God is sovereign in salvation and sanctification and you're responsible to exercise your will. Both of these things are true. This is how you will make sure you do not wander off. As I was praying this week about where to go from here, because I think we've talked uh, enough about that, um, it, is, it is fundamental, it is foundational. I do want us to understand it. If you have questions, please let me know. But I thought we would um, move on. And as, as I was trying to, to hear the Lord on this, he took me back to Colossians. So I really enjoyed the three sermons in Colossians. I thought, well, why don't we just cover the whole book? It's so short. We can do it in a number of weeks. So if you'd like to turn to Colossians chapter 1, that's where we'll be tonight. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, it's between Philippians and 1 Thessalonians in the New Testament. And as I did last week, I thought I would begin with a question. Um, so I'm going to make you think just a little bit about it. I want a wor one word answer, okay? Just a one word answer. What is the Bible about? How would you respond? If you were given one word and someone said, well, what's the Bible about? How would you respond? There's always, obviously, there are a lot of great ways to answer this question, but what, what did you come up with? I heard something over here. It's about God. Okay, that's good. That can't be wrong. That's never wrong. It's not the answer I'm looking for, but it's not wrong. Jesus is good. Jesus is God. So, Jesus and God. Okay. Any, any other? Any other? Anybody, want else, anybody else want to take a shot? Those are good answers. Um, I wanted to see if one word would, would surface. Uh, I think this word's important for us to understand. Um, when you think about the biblical message, at some point this word needs to bubble up into your mind and into your heart. The word is life. The Bible is about life. The Bible is about the God of life calling dead men and women out of death and into life. God is giving away life, eternal and infinite. There's at least four dimensions to the life that God gives. Now, I know we always think about length, don't we? We always think about eternity. We, all, we simply think about eternity. But if we're thinking rightly, we need to think about breadth and height and depth. Infinity in all directions. Um, this is the kind of life that God has called us to. I'm not talking about brain waves and a pulse. Okay? I'm not talking about simply being animated. We are animated beings, Right? But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a soulish life, a spiritual life. Um, this is the message 
of the Bible, the born again, begotten of God kind of life. Those of you who've read C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, uh, you may remember this. I want to share a quote with you. You may recall that he likens brain waves and a pulse to uh, simply biological life, right? He calls it bios. He calls the spiritual life that God offers, he calls it zoe. And then he writes this. Let me just read a short paragraph to you. Lewis says, bios life, just inhaling and exhaling, has to be sure a certain shadowy resemblance of Zoe life, but only the sort of resemblance there is between a photograph and the actual place, or a statue of a man and the actual man. A man who changed from having merely bios life to having zoe life would have gone through as big a change as a statue which changed from being a carved stone to being a man. And then he says, that's precisely what Christianity is all about. The world is a great sculptor's shop and some of us are coming alive. I love this quote. I love this quote. I pray that all of us in this room are alive. In the, in the Zoe sense, I know, I know you all have a, at least for the time being, you all have brain waves and a pulse. I know that's true. Um, my prayer is that we have the Zoe life, the soulish life, the God-given life, the spiritual life, the born-again life. If you read the Bible, you get all of this kind of imagery, a thousand references to life in the Scripture. I'm just going to give you a couple of phrases the Bible uses. The Bible talks about the breath of life, the tree of life, the path of life, the fountain of life, the springs of life, the way of life, the well of life, the statutes of life, the bread of life, the word of life, the book of life, the promise of life, the crown of life, the river of water of life. So sometimes in the future when someone asks you to give a one-word answer to what the Bible is about, you're equipped now to say it's about the life of God. He's giving away to any and all who would believe, to any and all who would repent and believe. You remember how Jesus talked about it, right? You remember how Jesus talked about himself? I won't give you the references. If you want them, I'll email them to you. Jesus said, in the beginning was the Word. John says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God, and in Him was life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said, I came that they might have life, and they might have it abundantly. So I'm going to ask you, does that, uh, is that a reflection of your Christianity? Abundant life. Abundant life. This is what he's called us to. I love, uh, I love words, and I looked at the Greek lexicon here, and it, there's, a, there's a phrase about this Greek word that's translated abundant. There's a phrase, it's, it's the more than necessary kind of life, which is uh, intriguing, I think. The Living Bible here says, it, you, uh, paraphrases Jesus' words in John 10, 10, my purpose is to give life in all of its fullness, to be born from above. A life, I want you to listen to this, a life that really matters every single moment of every single day. And a life that really matters every single moment for a billion eternities. Unbelievers have brain waves and a pulse, but they do not have this kind of life. The life that only God can 
give. You guys, I'll get into the text in a minute, but you guys know Ephesians 4.18. It's one of the most sobering verses in the Bible. Paul says unbelievers are excluded from the life of God. Excluded from the life of God. So we've talked about it here many, many times. What is a condemnation? Eternal condemnation. What, how does the Bible speak about it? It is what? The second death. It's eternal death. You don't go out of existence, but you eternally are dead. Right? This is one aspect of condemnation, eternal condemnation that the Bible gives us. I love how Paul exhorted Timothy. He says, fight the good fight of faith and lay hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. Eugene Peterson paraphrases that. Seize the eternal life that you were called to. You know, down into the minutiae of everyday life. It's important that we do this. You know, going with God is not always about doing a great thing. But it's honoring God in the small things. You know, this is what happens for most of us. Most of us aren't going to do some great thing that the world recognizes for God. But every day you can make him great in the small things. Every day you can do this. And I've heard the Lord challenge me on this recently. He wants me to make him great in practicing patience. Because I don't have a lot of this sometimes, particularly in, in, in unique circumstances. I don't have the, the patience I should have. And God has challenged me. Hey, Jim, you don't have to be, go do a great thing. Why don't you just make me great right there? Why don't you worship me in the patience? Worship me in the patience. And every one of you have some area where immediately you know where you need to make Jesus great, right? Whatever it is in your life where you struggle. Um, yeah, bring God into the mundane. You'll change your outlook for sure. Um, as I read the opening verses in Paul's letter to the Church of Colossae, these were the thoughts that were filling my mind, that we would seize the day for God, that we would seize the day, and that we would live the gospel. So before we look at the text, just a brief introduction. Probably most of you know this. Paul wrote this letter around 60 A.D., this letter to the Colossians, he wrote it from prison in Rome. Um, Colossae is about 60, about 100 miles east of Ephesus in what is known today as Turkey. The church was not planted by Paul. It was planted by Paul's disciple, um, Epaphras, which his name is mentioned in verse 7. And we'll make our way there tonight. So why does the Holy Spirit prompt Paul to write this letter? Um, as in the case of so many New Testament books, the Holy Spirit is confronting heresy. I've told you as we were preaching in Colossians chapter 3 some weeks ago that Paul is dealing with Jewish legalism, pagan mysticism, and an early form of Gnosticism that was threatening the church. So Jewish legalists were saying you have to have Jesus plus some Jewish stuff, Right? The Gnostics were saying you have to have Jesus plus, plus secret knowledge. 
The pagans were saying you have to have Jesus plus ecstatic mystical experiences. So Jesus was never enough, right? This is what Paul is refuting. Jesus is always enough. Anytime you hear a gospel that adds something to Jesus, which there are many in the world today, Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, and even some forms of apostate Protestantism, people are adding stuff to Jesus Christ. That's always a false gospel. Always a false gospel. It's always demonic. It's always demonic. We know what Paul says in uh, Galatians, I believe it is. He says, if any man preaches another gospel, what does is, what is Paul call down on this man? Cursed. Let him be accursed, right? So anytime anyone's adding anything to Christ, the finished work of Christ, then you know you're dealing with a false gospel. The Christ plus gospels are false. Anytime someone says you have to add a ritual, you have to add a sacrament, you have to add a prayer, you have to add, a, add an experience, a ceremony, a membership, or any kind of religious activity, you're dealing with a false gospel. So the letter to the church of Colossae, Paul is saying you don't need Jesus plus legalism, you don't need Jesus plus higher knowledge, and you don't need Jesus plus mystical experiences. All you need is Jesus. I trust that everyone in this room understands that. But Paul is going to make that point as he processes through this letter. Let's pick up here. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes, An apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace. From God, our Father. Paul reminds the church of his credentials. What are his credentials? He's an apostle. He's chosen of God uniquely. Those are his credentials by the will of God, right? We are what we are by the will of God. Paul was called out by Jesus himself to be an apostle. Did Paul go looking for Jesus? Do you remember the story? Was he looking for Jesus? He was persecuting Jesus, right? And Jesus showed up. What happened? This is why I like to talk about true conversion as an invasion, right? What happened on the road to Damascus? Yeah, Jesus showed up, right? Jesus invaded his life and everything changed for, for, for Paul. From the perfect Jew... You know, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he became a humble follower of the Lord by the will of God. And in verse 2, he calls the Colossians, he calls them saints. So you know what the, the word saint means, right? You know what this means. It just means, from a biblical perspective, it just means you're a believer, a true believer. It's not some super duper class of Christian as the Catholic Church talks about, every true believer, every born-again believer is a saint. This is how the Bible uses the term. We are sanctified and set apart in Christ. If you're a real Christian, you are a saint as far as the Bible is concerned. 
He also called them faithful brethren, right? Faithful brethren. Paul says you are the faithful brethren. Um, what does it mean? It means they're doing what Paul writes over here in, in, in chapter 3, verse 1. Remember, he says, if then you have been raised up with Jesus, keep seeking the things above, right? Keep seeking those things. Keep incarnating the word. Keep doing the word. Keep laying hold of the eternal life to which you've been called. Keep laying aside the old and picking up the new, what we've been talking about. Continue on in your sanctification, you're not a Christian if you're not continuing on in your sanctification. You think you're fooling God. You're not fooling God. Nobody fools God. He's never mocked, as the Bible tells us. If you're not moving on in your sanctification, what we've been talking about the last three to four or five times we've been together, you're not a Christian. You may be re religious, but you're not a Christian so I like how Eugene Peterson paraphrases this faithful brethren. He says they are stalwart followers, stalwart followers of Jesus Christ. Stalwart means to be strong. Let me just ask you, does this describe your Christianity? Does this describe your faith? Let me just define stalwart for you. To be strong in your faith, stout, sturdy, tenacious, tough, brave, bold, courageous, fearless, heroic. Now, these kind of men and women, they don't wander off, right? They don't wander off. They don't leave the church. They don't leave Christ. They love him. And they are sold out in following him. They took their Christianity, the, the, the Colossians took their Christianity serious. And I, and I know, you know, if you've been around here very long, you, you kind of have to take your Christianity serious or you just have to go to church somewhere else. Because every time you come in here, I'm going to challenge you on whether you're taking it seriously or not. Or whether it's just a side habit for you. I mean, you know, if it's a side habit for you, you've got serious problems. This is not what God intends. So the Colossians, they are statues that have come to life to borrow C.S. Lewis's imagery. They are stone that now breathes again to borrow that imagery. No more conformity with the world. No more laying up earthly treasures. No more playing religion. Their lives shouted. And I want to ask you, does your life shout this? Their lives shouted, I love God. Does everybody at the university know that you love God? Does everybody at your job know that you love God? Not just any God, the God. Yeah, we know there are a lot of gods, so-called lowercase g gods in the world, but you know the living God. You smell like Christ. You are the aroma of Him in the world. Verses 3 and 4, chapter 1, Colossians. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all of the saints. Paul's talking about their faith again. Um, it's real. It's real for them. We've heard about it, Paul says. We've heard about your faith. How many people have heard about your faith? How many people have heard about your faith? 
I don't think this is a small question. <laughs> you know, I don't want to embarrass Orazio, but and I won't name names. But I had a guy tell me not too long ago, you know, that Orazio, man, that Orazio, man, he really lives it, you know? He's really a man of faith. He's really a selfless man. He's probably not all that great, but, you know. But, I mean, I heard someone talking. People should talk about your faith. Your faith should be so visible that people should talk about it. Paul says, hey, I've heard about it. He's never been there. He's never been to Colossae. He's heard about it. Are people hearing about your faith in the world? God has called us to be what? Men and women who do the word. We don't just come in here and talk about it and sing about it. We live it Monday through Saturday. You know the illustration. Faith is like the wind. The wind is invisible, but you can see its effect. And so everybody in your life has felt the breeze, right? The wind is blowing. Faith is like the wind. It's invisible, but you can always see its effect. I love this illustration. Everybody in your life can feel the breeze. So verse 4, he says, I've heard about your faith. Jesus said, it's the preeminent mark of a true Christian. We talked about this the last couple of weeks. Let me just read this text to you again. John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus said, you are to love one another even as I have loved you. By this, all men will know that you are mine. We saw this in the sanctification series. You'll know you're a Christian. And people will know that you're a Christian. Jesus says, by the love that you have for the brethren. Yes, we love the world at large, but there's a special love for the brethren. It's what the Bible teaches us. Paul says, I've heard of your love for all the saints. For all the saints. And then he says it again in verse 8. Look down in verse 8. He says, and he also informed us of, Epaphras has informed us of your love in the Spirit. Again, this is always a hallmark of a true believer. And this is one of the highest compliments that can be paid to a church. Paul says, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love. It doesn't get much better than that. You guys know 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. What's he talking about there? Is he, is he talking about being physically martyred? No. There's probably only 0.00001% of all Christians who would ever be physically martyred. I could be wrong in the math there. I don't know. But a small percentage of Christians will be physically martyred, at least until the end times. We know there will be a massive martyrdom in the end times. But so, what's he talking about? He's talking about simply being selfless in your love and in your service. Just being selfless in the body. You know, being one of those people that is known for doing random acts of kindness, being conspicuous. It's like being like Jesus, you know, be conspicuous in your faith, be conspicuous in your love. I think this is what the Lord is saying to us. You guys know 1 Corinthians 13, the famous love chapter. 
Um, what, does the, what does the Bible tell us? Abide in faith, hope, and love. Paul tells the Colossians, he's heard about their faith, he's heard about their love, now he's going to bring up their hope in verse 5. Let's look at verse 5. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, which is the gospel. Paul has heard about their faith, their love, and their hope. Man, what a great thing. You, know, you could just put this on your tombstone, right? A man or woman who lived their faith, their love, and their hope. Their hope was palpable. You could not take Paul's joy, and you cannot take your joy, ultimately. I'm not saying we don't cry. I'm not saying we don't struggle. But you can't have my joy, right? My hope is imperishable. My hope is in the living God, the incarnate, crucified, buried, resurrected, reigning God. My hope's in Him. Death couldn't hold Him. <laughs> you think a little hard circumstance is going to make me lose faith? You think it's going to make me wander off because it's hard? Now, again, we've talked about it. People wander off from the faith all the time because it's hard. It's because it was never real for them. They never really knew him. They never really loved him. They were not born again. But Paul says, man, these guys are living their faith. They're loving the brethren. And they're, you know, they really... Their hope is alive. Their hope in Christ is real. It, it, it affects how they live. It made me think of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. You guys know the Bema seat, right? You guys know about the Bema seat where all believers will gather before God. This is not about sin. Sin's been taken care of. But believers will be gathered before God with respect to reward, right? I know I've talked to some Christians, they're too spiritual to believe in reward. Well, my only problem with that is um, God talks about it a lot. <laughs> there will be reward for the good steward. It will happen. It's, again, the Bema seat, you know. The real Christian is pointing at the Bema seat. When I get up in the morning, I'm not pointing at a million dollars. I'm not pointing at success. I'm not pointing at, you know, all the comfort and ease I can attain. I'm not pointing at mass accumulation and materialism. I'm pointing at the Bema seat. Really? This matters. What are you pointing at? This matters. <coughs> what are you pointing at? You know, if I'm just a third-party observer and I'm watching your life, I don't know you. I, I just watch your life. If I watched you for five years, what would I deduce that you're pointing at? If I watched you for a week, what would I deduce that you're pointing at? Beloved, it matters. It matters what we are pointing at. The Colossians were pointing at the Bema seat. Again, not about sin. It's the place where God rewards His people. The Bema is just a Greek word. It was a place where the, the, the Olympic athletes would be in an elevated place and they would be crowned. Okay? That's what the... The Bema is just a Greek word for that process. So we are preoccupied with heaven. We are preoccupied with heaven. I like to say it. It's important. You know... We've been through Crazy Love a couple of times with the young adults. If you haven't read the book, I highly recommend it by Francis Chan. 
we went through a chapter called the profiles of the lukewarm. One of the profiles of the lukewarm is, and I mentioned this to you at least some months ago, I know. The lukewarm never think about heaven. Never. Well, let me, let me quote Chan properly. They rarely or never think about eternity. Rarely or never. You know, in my view, this is a sure sign that you're in love with something here. If you're not, if you're not really looking, you're not looking at the Bema seat, you're not planning for the Bema seat, you're not hoping for the Bema seat, you're not building your life around the reward you'll receive at the Bema seat and the glory that Christ will receive through uh, your faith and your works. There's a problem here, beloved. <clears throat> there is a huge problem. I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases Hebrews 12 too. He says, never lose sight of where you're headed. So if some of you have lost sight of where you're headed, well, it's a good thing you're here tonight. So you can remember where you're headed and that it matters and that it informs every day. Where you're headed informs every day. You know, it's true, isn't it? You've heard it said a hundred times. Human beings, ultimately, we do exactly what we want. If it's within our power, we do what we want. There's no excuse before God. If we want God, we can have God. If we don't want God, we, if we have no taste for God, if we have no desire for God, if we're not pursuing and seeking God, that's on us. Yes, He's sovereign, but you're responsible. So, you know, you know I get people who want to who throw sovereignty back in my face. Well, I'm not elect. Well, how do you know you're not elect? That's not your job. God doesn't ever talk like that. You're not supposed to figure out if you're elect. You're supposed to repent and believe and obey. That's what you're called to do. Yeah, there's mystery here. Yeah, there's tension here. How could there not be tension? We're dealing with, obviously, an infinite mind. So as I often remind you, I have to just go there. Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. Um, these men and women were what? They were looking at the Bema seat. They probably didn't know how to speak about it like you and I do. We have the full New Testament. We have the, the fullness of the Bible. We have the 66 books of, of Revelation. They, they wouldn't have used this language, but they were looking at the Bema seat. And they lived these extraordinary lives looking at the Bema seat. Hey, you want to get freed up? You want to get freed up? You want to live courageous and bold? You want to be, you want to be a real disciple in the world? Look at heaven. Look at God in heaven. <laughs> you get freed up, man. You stop looking at all this minutia down here, right? When you look at the reigning God in heaven and all the, the promises He's made to us, you are free. I don't know if you're living like you're free, but you are free. If you're a Christian, you're free. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be afraid. So these men and women, Hebrews 11, verse 10, they were looking for the city of God. Verse 13, they confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They knew they didn't belong here. They were pointing at that, right? Verse 16 of Hebrews 11, they desired a better country. They desired a heavenly one. Is that an active desire for you? Or is it just some academic thing? Yeah, I know the Bible says that. Do, do you remember what God says to these men and women <laughs> that live like this? <laughs> do you remember what he says? I love this text. I love this verse. He says, I'm not ashamed. Anybody know? 
I am not ashamed to be your God. Men and women who point at the Bema, men and women who, who point at heaven, men and women who never let eternity escape their mind for very long, they always turn back and look at eternity. God says, I am not ashamed to be your God. I think that's powerful, man. I think, I think you could just paint that on your ceiling and let it be the first thing you see, right, every morning. Uh, I don't want God to be ashamed that I'm his God because I'm so interested in all the minutiae of this life, right? All the world has to offer. I've left my first love. I'm not wholly in love with Jesus Christ as I know I ought to be. I don't love him like apparently he loves me, which is what? He's all in. I mean, all you have to do is look at the cross and realize that he was all in. I'm going to go to Hebrews 11 real quick. And I'm just going to read to you verse 24 through 27. I want you to listen to this. I want to, I want to illustrate this with Moses' life. Just listen. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused the ways of the world. Are you doing that? Verse 25. Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Listen to this. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of, heaven, of Egypt, for he was looking to what? Anybody remember? Looking to the reward. He was looking at the Bema. He didn't have this language. This language was after Moses' time, but he was looking at the Bema. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Do you process your life by looking at him who is unseen? I love what John MacArthur says about Moses in this passage. Listen, from a worldly perspective, Moses was sacrificing everything for nothing. But from a heavenly perspective, he was sacrificing nothing for everything. You know, it always comes down to this, right? You can weigh it out. You can read the Bible for yourself and weigh it out. Where do you hear gain and where do you hear loss, right? You can just weigh it out. You read a verse and you go, you know, there's something in the back of, uh, I carry this in the back of my Bible. I've read it to the young adults several times. I just love the way this is stated, if I can find it here. The back of my Bible is somewhat of a mess. Here we go. I'm under control. Okay. This is just a young woman in confession. Listen to what she says. I desire about 64% of what Jesus says. I figure most people sitting in churches today, that's probably about true. I'm down for 64%, she says. That's about all I can handle. For every six things I like about Jesus' stuff, there are four things I'm totally willing to ignore. How about that, right? Or discredit. I do it every day, you guys. I look several things in the eye, some things of God, and I say no. She says, I'm a D-minus Christian. Well, does anybody pass with a D-minus? I don't know. Not in America. Can you pass with a D-minus? Oh, you can in Honduras. But you can't in America. That's, that doesn't pass. She says, I'm a D-minus Christian. Man, the, I, I love the, 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 the transparency here. You got to think about it. You know, when you come in here, I, I tell you this a lot, but when you come in here, it's like, you know, nobody else is going to talk to you like this, most likely. We just talk truth here. 
You may like truth, you may not. I pray that you do. So, the Colossians, they got the Hebrews 11 thing. They got it. They understood it. They were living it. So, Paul is saying, man, I know you really believe. It's in your life. I see your faith in your life. I see your love in your life. I see your hope in your life. We were talking about someone, Karen and I were talking about a friend of ours, mutual friend of ours coming in, who was in the church for a long time. They're out of the church now. And uh, she, said, she said, when did you know that they weren't a true believer? I said, I didn't know. But the, 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 the false disciple always declares themselves. We know the perfect example, right? Who's that? Judas? Everybody, th everybody knew Judas was real. Everybody knew he was real. He wasn't real. He wandered off. He wandered off. And he betrayed the Lord. Let's finish up here. Verse 6. Paul says, The gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it's constantly what? Bearing fruit. There it is. It's in your life. We know a tree by its fruit. If there's an apple on the tree, we know it's not a pear tree. Right? I don't know much about agriculture, but I know that. So, bearing fruit and increasing. Okay? There's fruit and it's increasing. It's not just a little fruit. There's fruit and it's increasing. This is what real Christianity looks like. And he says... Even as it has been doing in you, it's in you, also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. What does the real gospel do? It always bears fruit. There are about four parables or metaphors that Jesus uses to talk about this. I, I want you to turn with me, if you would. I want to turn over to Matthew 13 real quick. You know the parable of the soils, or the, some people call it the parable of the sower. I'm going to pick up in verse 18 where Jesus explains the, the parable. So I'm in Matthew 13. I'm going to pick up in verse 18. These are the words of Jesus. These are red words. Jesus says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown on, or pardon me, beside the road. So what's the key element here on, on the seed that's sown by the road? What's the key, key element of this heart? What? There's no fruit, right? There's no fruit. Okay. Verse 20. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Hey, this guy must be a Christian. He's jazzed about it. Verse 21. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. What's the other characteristic here that matches the first? There's no fruit. He falls away. Jesus continues. Verse 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is a man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke out the word and it becomes what? Unfruitful. There's no fruit. If there's no fruit, 
There's no life. That's why I started with the question. Christianity is about life. Look at verse 23, Matthew 13. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. What's the hallmark of a true believer? There's fruit. There's fruit. There's a lot of ways to talk about fruit. But this is what God is saying to us. So in Paul's opening comments to the Colossians, he's commending them for really living the Christian life. It's what the Bible is about. Yes, it's about God. Yes, it's about Jesus. Yes, it's about salvation. Yes, there are many one word answers. But I want you to to from henceforth, I want you to think about life. The Bible's about life. God is giving away life to dead men and women, the Zoe life, not just, you know, brain waves and a pulse. Jesus said it. I have come to give this to you. And he did it with the sacrifice of himself. So that's what Paul is describing in the opening verses of Colossians. The born again, born from above, begotten of God kind of life, a life so meaningful and significant that it impacts the far side of eternity, right? <laughs> That's pretty cool. The kind of life that disciples of Christ live, a life that conspicuously incarnates the Word of God, really doing faith, really doing love, really living hope, and really bearing fruit. This man or woman will not wander off. They will, as the Revelation says, overcome. They will finish with Jesus. They will finish. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the text. <clears throat> we thank you for this word that you have given through the apostle. We thank you that you have preserved it for us. We thank you that we can read it, we can open it, we can understand it. It's in our language. We're hearing you speak to us. We're hearing the challenge to live out our faith, our hope, and our love. It's what you've called us to do and be. So we thank you, Father. And we thank you as we continue through the book that we will see that Christ plus gospels are always false. Lord, I pray that we would be biblically literate in this sense. I pray that we would understand. And when we hear the, the Christ plus gospels, we would reject them. For that we know that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. We love you, Father. Thank you for these few minutes together. Again, thank you for your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.